You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, now we pray that you would indeed show us yourself, that you would be our vision, that you would consume our vision, that the the thought and sight of you in our vision might crowd out and eclipse all other temptation, all other gods before us. We pray these these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If I haven't met you, welcome to Christ Church. My name is Nathan. There's a few of you here on this Super Bowl Sunday that I haven't met, so I'm glad to see you. Uh, last week was fun. Uh, if you weren't with us, we had a bit of a natural gas smell in the building. Had one of you guys, Aaron, asked me this evening, why couldn't we have scheduled that for this evening? But whatever, uh, hopefully you were all able to listen to the last seven minutes or so of the sermon that Mark Scott expertly spliced onto the end of what we had already recorded on the podcast. It was a strange week, but we made the right call last week. Uh, At the end of that chapter, chapter 5, we saw three witnesses, John the Baptist, God the Father, and the scriptures themselves acquit Jesus of any charges that the Jewish leadership had brought against him. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus turned the tables and actually showed those who were putting Jesus on trial that it was actually them that were actually on trial. They were the ones who were accused. They, with the entire world, are never able to live a life of perfect moral perfection of living a life of loving God and others sinlessly. Rather, they, like we, have lived selfishly and self-worshippingly to the exclusion of God. 
And though Jesus will continue to acquit himself and acquit himself and acquit himself over and over and over again through the rest of the book, the world will ultimately condemn and execute him. But it's through his condemnation that we are accepted. It's through his death that we have life. It's through his suffering that we have forgiveness. So chapter 5 was really good, and chapter 6 is just as good. So I'm excited to get into it. Well, the Sabbath was the setting for chapter 5. The Passover, it's still going. Like three weeks, guys. My voice is almost back, but we'll get there someday. Until then, we'll just be prepubescent for a few more weeks. The, the, the Passover will be the setting for chapter 6. We'll see how this is the case tonight in this feeding and walking on water, these two vignettes tonight, and then a big old chunk through the rest of the chapter next week. So you might want to spend some time in the rest of chapter 6 this week in preparation for next Sunday. But tonight, we'll think through this in three headings. Jesus solves a problem, he gets misunderstood, and then he shows who he really is. So let's get after it. Jesus solves the problem. Let's read these first four verses in chapter 6 again of the Gospel according to John. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, so Jesus has gone back up to Galilee from Jerusalem. John has him going back and forth and back and forth, and a large crowd is following him, again because of the signs. Up here in the north, he... It's where he healed the official son, but word had probably traveled about what he had done for this paralyzed man, and undoubtedly there were more healings that Jesus, or that John hadn't recorded of Jesus. So it's probably a good presumption that John includes this note about why the crowds were there, not because there was like huge crowds of sick people that wanted to be healed by him, but because these crowds just wanted to see more of the action. They, they wanted to see some, some more tricks. And because these huge crowds are swarming in on him, Jesus gets away with his disciples for a little bit of peace and quiet. Mark and Matthew make it a little bit more clear that Jesus isn't just going up on to the mountain for a hike with his disciples. Like, they really want to get away. And then again, John gives this little throwaway statement that the Passover is at hand. More on that, but this little throwaway comes as like a title for the rest of this chapter. And then Jesus and his disciples, they look up, they thought they had gotten away, and oh man, here they come. It's like the paparazzi, right? Uh, One of my kids was saying the other day about how cool it'd be to be famous, everyone would know you, and I I was like, man, you don't want that. Like, I can't imagine being like Leonardo DiCaprio or something, and like, if you're pumping gas or at the grocery store... 50 photographers are following you along or around and then like everyone else is just approaching you with cell phones and selfie sticks wanting to get a picture, right? Exhausting. While there aren't huge cameras or selfie sticks in this crowd, at least the disciples must have just looked up and sighed like, all right, here we go again, right? But knowing the size of the crowd, knowing how long they had been following him and knowing the hour of the day, Jesus then asks Philip, he says, Hey, man, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do for food for all these people? And Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, but nevertheless, he still asks Philip. Now, don't get hung up on the whole, he said this to test him thing. Test here isn't necessarily a negative thing. Like, he's just trying to trick him. He's laying the bear trap down and hoping hoping he steps in it. He's not trying to trip him up. This word can be entirely neutral. It's a teaching moment. It's like when your parents asked you what to do next. Like, your dad is like, all right, buddy, we got the fishing pole in the tackle box here. What do we do? What should we do with it? 
and, or your mom is like, all right, so we've put in the flour and the eggs. What's next in the recipe? It's like your parent doesn't want to just give you the right answer. They want you to think through and come up with the right answer. It's the same thing going on here. And think back to chapter four. Flip, flip back if you want. The disciples, including Philip, they are at the end of chapter four. They're approaching Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And we read in verse 31, the disciples are coming back to Jesus. They've been away from him in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. We read, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I know that he hasn't eaten a while. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they think he's got like a fanny pack with some bread that they are unaware of, right? So the disciples said to one another, wait, has anybody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So now, here back on the mountain in chapter 6, when Jesus asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? The right and first response that Jesus is trying to get into Philip's head, trying to work through with him, is to think through Philip saying, I don't know. I have no idea, but I know that you know. I remember that time at the well when you taught us that our physical appetites, they, they might be misleading. And that maybe even that you were indicating that our appetites point us to a greater reality. I'm not sure. I haven't quite figured that out when, or figured that one out yet. So maybe you can teach us more about that next Sunday in the rest of chapter six. But I do know, Jesus, that you are God. I am not. And I know that you can provide everything that this people needs. And whatever you decide to do with bread or with anything else, you would be good and right to do. I trust you. That's what Jesus wanted Philip to be thinking through. But instead, like the paralyzed man at the pool, when Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed, and the man could only see what was in front of him and said, I don't know, like, there's nobody, yeah, sure, I'd like to be healed, but there's nobody to get, get me to this magic water, right? Now, Jesus asks Philip, okay, man, you've been following me? You've been learning from me? What should we do next? What is it that we should do now? Where can we buy bread for these folks? And like the paralyzed man, Philip can only see what's in front of him. And he says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get just a little bite. Like, are you nuts, Jesus? You're crazy. The fishing lessons that dad has been given or have been giving Philip are not working. He's like, all right, buddy, we have our fishing pole and we've got our tackle box. What do we do next? I don't know, and it's cold. Can we go home? Is like a rough paraphrase of the Greek of what Philip said. So a denarius is a day's wage. So Philip is saying, even if we had eight months worth of pay here, eight months worth of money, we would just have enough to buy like a bite or two of bread. So we don't have that kind of money, Jesus. You're missing the point here. You don't even know what you're talking about. But then Andrew pipes up. And Andrew's found a boy who has five barley loaves. These are probably likely smallish, flat, kind of like Peter rounds. And then he finds this boy who also has two fish. These are fish that are probably pickled. They could be taken uh, with you and eaten later as a snack or like a small side dish. Five Peter rounds and two pickled fish. We're not totally sure what Andrew's thought process is. He certainly doesn't expect Jesus to do what he ends up doing because he says, but what are they for so many? But at least he's trying. So give him that. So Jesus, I'm imagining, 
Andrew's got, I got five pita rounds and two pickled fish, but what do we do? And Jesus, that'll do. That'll do. He tells the disciples to tell them all to sit down, all of them being 5,000 men, perhaps three to four times that many people, when we include the count of the women and children. And when they're all seated, he gives thanks for the food that God has given, and then suddenly there is enough for 15 to 20,000 people. Now here's where the Passover becomes extremely important. We read about the Passover in Exodus two weeks ago in our Read Scripture plan. If you hope you've been reading along with us, so hopefully this isn't totally new. But year after year, Israel would would remember how God had saved them out of Egypt. How through Moses, God had delivered them out of Egypt. How through Moses, God had delivered them and taken them through the waters of judgment. How through Moses, he had led them through the wilderness. How through Moses, he had provided everything that they needed in the wilderness. And now, with the Passover as the title for this section, God is doing it again. Mark and Matthew are a bit less subtle in their language as they describe what's going on. Mark and Matthew, even though all of them uh, make note, like John does, that it's a grassy place, uh, Mark and Matthew say that it's, it's a desolate place, or more literally, they're in the wilderness. Israel is out in the wilderness with nothing to eat. And so, what is going to happen? Jesus being the new Moses, leading his people out of their slavery is providing for their needs. And we know that the crowds make the same connection because John tells us in verse 14 that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, which is a a reference to Deuteronomy 18. When Moses, as his life is nearing the end, Moses gets in front of the people and he tells them, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the people have been waiting for give or take 1400 years for a prophet like Moses. And now here he is, the new Moses out in the wilderness providing bread for his people. Let's come back to this idea in a minute. There's a lot more, a lot more to think, through, think about as the people then misunderstand the implications for what this means that the new Moses is here. But I've kind of always wished the gospel writers kind of like explained a little bit more about how this happened. Like I always wondered this in Sunday school. Like it was like, did they eat? Did everybody like each get a little morsel and that was enough to fill them? No, because then there was baskets and baskets of stuff left over. So how, did, they, did it just appear out of nowhere? I, like, I don't know. Mark and Luke at least tell us that the, the disciples had everyone sit in little groups of 50 or 100 and then the disciples distributed all these baskets. And, but we're not told how this fish and bread just comes out of nowhere and it's enough, right? But John doesn't seem to be all that concerned about the hows. What he's more wanting to highlight is the utter lavishness of the feast. Verse 11, they had as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill. Verse 12 and 13, there are leftovers, 12 baskets full. However great Moses was, Jesus is better. Like the amazing wine that was filled to the huge uh, ceremonial jar brim, right, in the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. Jesus' cleansing, which can finally cleanse internally, is far greater than the old just ceremonial system of cleansing externally. Jesus is showing that the old way was good, but the new way is better. God provided what you needed for a time through Moses 
in his bread and in his law. But now I am providing far more than you need, far more than you could even dream of through my bread and by my grace. Providing those for those of weak faith, better than they deserve. He's the source of life. Jesus has already shown that he is the source of new birth, that he is the source of healing, that he is the source of living water. And now he's showing himself to be the source of life itself, of sustenance. But these people of weak faith, who actually don't deserve this unbelievably filling and satisfying meal, they then misunderstand the implications. What Jesus has just done actually does make him the prophet that Moses had spoken about all those years before. The people weren't wrong, but nevertheless, they misunderstand what that means. So he solved a problem, but second, he gets misunderstood. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now put yourself into the sandals of this crowd, right? Most of, most of you, the crowds, you've lived your entire life in poverty and hunger. All of you have lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Many of you have been kicked and spit on by the Romans perhaps your entire life. Perhaps some of you have even had family members killed by a Roman soldier. And then this new Moses comes along. He's not only filling our tummies, like for maybe the first time ever, like when was the last time that we had enough to eat that we had leftovers? But we all remember what happens when Moses gets the people to the promised land, right? And what just seems like a couple seconds later, then David and Solomon are on the scene, right? And their kingdoms are awesome. And people are coming to us asking for wisdom on how they should run their kingdoms. Nobody's kicking or spitting on us then. If anything, we were kicking and spitting on them then. Like everything is awesome in those times. So here we go. If Jesus can do what he just did with the bread, awesome trick by the way, just think what he could do to the Romans. If he can heal paralyzed legs and make them work again, think about what he could do to break like gold armored legs. This is Superman here. We got to have him. We can't let him get away. Make him king. Let's do this thing. No one is ever going to spit on me or ridicule me again. And the full-bellied crowds then begin pressing in even harder on Jesus. Maybe some of them have a makeshift robe or a crown, ready to crown him right there. But like Satan's offer of all the kingdoms in the world when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus in his humility must not take this offer. Think about it. Think about what Jesus could have done with Satan's offer in the wilderness. Think about what Jesus could have done with the people's offer here now. What would the world look like today if Jesus had said yes to this? Had said, yeah, let's do it. I'm going to rule you guys and let's do this. One of my seminary professors says this. Jesus could have directed the kingdoms of the world however he wanted. No more babies would be miscarried. No more women would die in childbirth. Ended immediately would be all human slavery, all genocide, all disease, all poverty. 
The rows and rows of crosses across the highway of the Roman Empire would suddenly be gone. There would be never a Nero or a Napoleon or a Hitler or a Stalin, or at least you'd never know the infamy of those names. There would be no world of divorce courts and abortion clinics and electric chairs and pornographic images. Whatever is troubling you right now would be gone, centuries before you were ever conceived. This sounds like paradise. Had Jesus just said, yes, let's do it. So why in the world would Jesus not take the crowds up on their offer, their desire to make him king? Because this kind of world of peace and prosperity is a world that doesn't actually deal with the problem that Jesus came to confront and to conquer. The love of God through Christ, the greater Moses, is that he has come not to just merely deliver us out of physical slavery, or even physical pain, or injustice, or death. He has come to, yes, deal fully and finally with all of that as well, but he has first and primarily come to deal with our sin, to deliver us out of the slavery of our sin. So when Peter objects to Jesus' telling of his coming death on the cross, how does Jesus respond to him? Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. This is a satanic offer in front of him. He's basically saying, I've heard these kinds of offers before, and without the cross, no one is saved. Without my life lived for my people, without my death died for them, they will still be enslaved to themselves and to the prince of this world, the devil. So the crowds, the disciples, the Jewish leadership, all people on earth who encounter him keep misunderstanding him and keep misunderstanding him. They misunderstand him as just some teacher rather than God who he is. They misunderstand him as weak and powerless when he is really powerful, just humble. They misunderstand him as or him and his kingdom as merely an earthly one come to confront and conquer other earthly opponents when he has first come to conquer spiritual ones. They misunderstand their greatest enemy as the Romans and all the sin out there missing the reality that their greatest enemy is the sin in here. So he gets out of there. Jesus just slips out because he wants no part of a kingdom where humans get to dictate what kind of king he will be and what kind of kingdom he gets to rule. The crowds tried to force him to be their king and to rule in the way that they wanted him to, but how often are we just like the crowds? Trying to force Jesus into ruling the way that we think he ought. Assigning words and causes to him that have little to do with his mission of love, with humility, with forgiveness, with the destruction of sin. So both political parties co-opt him as their own, claiming to be on his side when more often it looks like forcing him to be on theirs in a move of just greater advancement of more personal power. We often make wild demands of Jesus, forcing him to be a king that we think he ought, making demands that a creature ought never make of his or her creator. Like, if you were real, then you would do this. Or, if you really loved me, you would act in this way. We want him to elevate us so that no one will ever ridicule us again. Perhaps even put us in a position so that we are able to 
more efficiently ridicule others. Meanwhile, the real and actual Jesus, who has come to bring you joy and peace through his cross, just slips out. He slips out from these wild demands and causes that are not his primary concern. So he first solves a problem, and then he is badly misunderstood by them and even by us today. But then lastly, he shows who he really is. Maybe you were thinking that I had Angela read too much this evening. Uh, We should have devoted an entire evening to this walking on water thing, these five verses, and thought through that little section more slowly, more clearly. And I went back and forth on that a lot this week of whether we should do that. But John is doing something intentional here. If you'll notice what comes after this little scene, what we'll consider together next week, there are 71 verses in chapter 6, and only five of those verses are about this little water thing. Are about, they, only five of them aren't about bread. There's bread before, there's walking on water in the middle, and then there's lots of bread after. So what's going on? Well, first we need to remember the Passover theme. So just as Moses showed the mighty hand of God by exerting power and control over the chaotic waters of the Red Sea, so is Jesus here. And this is just one more piece of evidence that we've had since, that's been building and building since John 1.1, that Jesus is God. So places in the Old Testament, like Psalm 89, what Patrick read for us this evening and our call to worship should come to mind, where the psalmist writes, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or listen to the psalmist in Psalm 107, writing about God. The psalmist is writing about God and using the covenant name of God, his, his name Yahweh, but perhaps not even realizing that he is writing about the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who would come in its, his greater ful- fulfillment and revelation many centuries later. The psalmist writes in Psalm 107, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So now with perhaps passages like that in the Old Testament looking forward to a moment such as this. Listen to these five verses again in 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and was coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus is God. Perhaps even hinting as much with what he says in the end of verse 20. It is I. Perhaps hinting at I am. God's name of Yahweh. 
So John has this little section to clarify all the misunderstandings that the crowd had in the first part of the chapter and will continue have continue to have for the rest of the chapter. Just in case anyone was forgetting, he is God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He rules the raging seas. And I don't think it's an accident that John highlights the darkness at the end of verse 17. Like Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night in the dark, the disciples too with perhaps Nicodemus and the crowds as well, they don't understand him. They don't get it. Maybe they're rowing across the sea. They feel frightened that they're about to die in this storm and they're like, why didn't he just become our king back there? What in the world was he doing? That sure would have saved us a lot of time and trouble, right? But if Jesus can't be overwhelmed by a stormy sea, and then yes, The other Gospels tell us he can even tell the waves and wind that's enough and they obey him. Maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't think that we can approach Jesus like a trained animal and just make demands of him that he might obey our commands and perform when we want him to. He's the creator of all things. And he rules the raging seas. He can walk on the water. This is no monkey that we can just tell, hey, start doing tricks. I like that when you do the tricks. But a necessary implication of this is perhaps the most common application that usually gets highlighted when a section like this in one of the Gospels is preached, that if Jesus is control of all of this and if he can quiet the storm with a word, then we can also actually trust him in the so-called storms of our lives. We need him in the boat. We need more of Christ, not less, when we're in times of financial difficulty or physical pain and sickness. We need to be seeking him more diligently, looking for him through the windy and difficult life decisions or relational conflicts, through them, not just after the fact when everything is good again, We ought to be confidently expecting him over the horizon of the darkness of doubt, expecting him to approach, to be in charge of all things, and trusting him that if he hasn't shown up yet, then he is still wise and good, and I will trust him still. Trusting him, even resting through a rocking boat that whenever he wants to, Whenever in his wisdom and goodness he deems it to be right, he can calm all of this with a word. And he can get in this boat, and with what I think is going on at the end of verse 21, make it seem like the time of trouble is over in no time when he is with us, and then he just gets us to the place of safe harbor where we're with him through and after the fact. But the point of all this is to emphasize and highlight Jesus, his might, his power, his goodness, his care, rather than the various storms of your life. We are not the main characters of this story, just like the disciples are not the main characters. It's good for us to put ourselves in the boat with them, but not flipping the main character. Jesus is what's going on here. Jesus is highlighted. Jesus is emphasized. The story is about Christ. So the question then for all of us, like the disciples then, is will we look to him? Will we trust him with our lives? Will we trust him to provide us with what we need physically? 
when we trust him to provide us what we need for life and the forgiveness of sins through his cross. And then, will we come back next week and think through how he himself is not actually what we need? That's true, but actually what we most want. He's not just the fulfillment of our appetites, but the fulfillment of our greatest and deepest longings and desires. I'm bummed out that last week we weren't, we weren't able to sing this new song that we're going to introduce while we're approaching the table this evening. Last week in chapter 5, we were thinking a lot about Sabbath rest. But even as we're experiencing the pangs of physical appetites and hunger, as the ships of our lives are getting rocked to and fro amongst the very storms of our lives, let's all sing together as we approach the table this evening, as we're putting our confidence and hope and faith in Jesus's broken body and blood, Jesus, I am resting, resting. You are able to provide. You are able to speak life. You are able to speak peace with a word. So I am resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. I don't quite know yet what it means that you love me. I think I'm getting it more and more. But each day as we seek you as your people, each week as we gather together under, under your word, I'm finding out just a little bit more about what it means that you love me. Might you do that now, Lord Jesus, we pray. Might you show us yourself. Might you give us what we need physically. We pray that you would give us this day our daily bread, that you would provide what we need but even more than that, that you would show yourself to be the bread from heaven, that you would show yourself to be not only the desires or the, the, the fulfillment and the satisfaction of our appetites, but of our desires as well. Father, we pray that we would trust you. We pray that we would wait, no matter how rocky the boat is getting, that we would trust in Christ, the deliverer of, our, of, of us, the one who has delivered us out of the slavery of our sin. That if you have done the hardest part of saving us from our sin, that you will also do the relatively easy parts of bringing us home, of providing what we need, and of fixing our eyes on Christ. We pray that you would do all these things for his sake and our own good. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.